You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Let's pray as we go to God's Word today. Father, by your Spirit, would you make us attentive now to what you have to say? Incline our ears to hear your perfect word that we might believe all that it teaches, that we might obey all that it commands, that we might trust in all that it promises. We ask it for your sake, Jesus. Amen. Years ago, a prominent Christian was invited to give the commencement speech at Biola, my alma mater, and he spent... 60 hours preparing for his talk. 60. Do you know what he said? I'll tell you. Always pursue an intimate love relationship with your future spouse and spend time with your kids. Always pursue an intimate love relationship with your future spouse and spend time with your kids. He said it twice, and then he sat down. 40 seconds. $5,000. I don't know how much he got paid, but wow. Now, I was not present to hear the the speech, but if I were, I think I would have reacted like this. (sighs) Really? Really? Love your spouse? Love your kids? Love people? Really? Ah, Here's why. Because in our culture... Saying something like, hey, love each other, nothing sounds more cliche or canned or, as the kids would say, cringe than telling people, hey, you know what we really need to do? We just need to love each other. Guys, let's just love each other. It's kind of like you do you or follow your heart or it's just this, this phrase that's become almost completely meaningless. And it's a remarkably uncontroversial thing to say. People disagree wildly about what love is, but just about everyone agrees love is primary, love is essential. So saying something like, hey, let's be more loving. Yes, right? And it either comes across as sort of sentimental, like a Hallmark movie, or it comes across as smug or sanctimonious, like, hey, let's all be more loving like like me. And all of that makes today's passage deeply challenging because you know this passage, Even if you don't read the Bible, I'm confident you know this passage because you've been to weddings. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, Paul's hymn to love. It is very familiar, and you already know Paul's point. Hey, above all, let's love each other. I struggled preparing this talk because it's so familiar. It's so obvious. Okay, Paul, we get it. There's a tendency to just want to skim over this. And get to the juicy stuff, like spiritual gifts. I think there's a deeper reason, though, that I want to skim over this, or or why I struggle with this passage, or this idea of just, hey, love each other. The the deeper reason is this. On the one hand, the Bible is startlingly clear about the supremacy of love. Startlingly clear that above all, this is what counts, love. It's startlingly clear And it's just incredibly hard to actually obey. 
To, to love someone with a biblical definition of love is the hardest thing you will ever do. So you have a passage that is stunningly clear calling us to do something that is stunningly hard. There's no way to do it without dying. Dying to yourself. And so left to myself, I will gravitate towards just about anything else in life than loving people. I will make almost anything else the goal of my life, whether it be my own comfort or accolades or accomplishments or achievements, that will become the goal rather than love. That was certainly true of the, the Corinthians. They were obsessed with status and achievement. They're vying for importance in the church. And we've seen in the last few weeks, they measured their own importance on the basis of spiritual gifts. They were enamored with the miraculous ones, prophecy, words of wisdom and knowledge, and especially tongues. And for the Corinthians, those were the marks of being a truly spiritual Christian. That was the proof you'd arrived as a follower of Jesus. And so beginning in chapter 12, Paul begins to correct their thinking about these gifts. He starts by correcting their thinking about the church. He says every Christian has the Spirit of God. And every Christian has, therefore, a spiritual gift, some ministry assignment that God gives for each believer to carry out. And Paul says all of the gifts are different. Not everyone has all of the gifts, and yet all of the gifts are essential. Like the members of a body, everyone's called to do different things, which means, Paul says, as Corinthians, your differences shouldn't lead to division. They should lead to interdependence. As you see these different callings, it's not a reason to rank each other who I have the best gift, but to say, oh no, I need all of these gifts, just like I need all the members of my own body. So Paul starts correcting their view of the church and what it is, and now he reshapes how they think about just gifts or anything else or the way we approach life. Paul doesn't say, don't pursue spiritual gifts. He says it's all about how you do it, and the most important thing is that you do it in love. Any gift God gives us, any blessing is to be used for the benefit of others. That's Paul's point. That is the more excellent way, the most excellent way, Paul says, to live. In fact, at the end of 12, chapter 12, he says, rather than being obsessed with gifts, I'm going to show you a more excellent way to live. The more excellent way is the way of love. The way of love. This is what you need to understand this morning. Love is not simply a better way to live for Christians. It's the only way to live a genuinely Christian life. Love is not just actions. It's not just feelings. Love is a way of being in the world that is to animate and permeate everything we do. And Paul says if you don't use spiritual gifts to build other people up, if you don't pursue love, if you don't do everything in life guided by, controlled by, animated by love, all of that ultimately amounts to nothing. Nothing. So why is love essential? That's the first question to ask. And then what is love essentially? Why is this so important to God? And then what are we being called to pursue? And I hope what you see is that this is not just clear. This is staggeringly hard to do. And the only way to do it is to see God's love for us. 
Let's start with why love is essential. Just obvious questions today, okay? Why is love essential for Christians? Um, here's the first reason. Uh, John 13, 35, Jesus says to his disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. By your intellect, charisma, your, your spiritual superpowers and abilities, what you accomplish for Jesus. No, what does he say? It's your love. And, and not just any love, it's Christ-like love, the way I've loved you, show that love, and not just to anyone, but to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the ultimate marker of spirituality. The ultimate proof that you are a follower of Jesus is you love like Jesus loves. Now, now, why is that the mark? We'll get there in a second. But the first thing you need to realize is that our temptation is just to make about anything else the mark of success as a Christian. That was the Corinthians, right? They, they had a name for themselves. They were spiritual. That's how they refer to themselves. We're the spiritual ones because we speak in tongues and we're kind of like Marvel heroes super spiritually, right? Just words, power, miracles. We're just these amazing people. And Paul says all of that is bankrupt, without love. The first point he makes, verses one through three, is that gifts minus love are futile. They amount to nothing. If all of your gifts aren't channeled toward building others up, they are nothing. Nothing at all. What is he saying? That the ultimate marker of status in the people of God is love. And he goes to great lengths to show this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The Corinthians loved this gift of tongues, and Paul says, if you don't speak in tongues to, to build other people up, you're a clanging gong, noisy gong. Uh, it's also the word for vase, which is a poignant image, right? Think about a metal vase, and you hit it. It echoes and reverberates, but inside it's hollow. I'm a hollow noisemaker if this spiritual gift is not animated by love. Think about a symbol. No matter how eloquent, how miraculous, how heavenly my speech, if it's not animated by building you up, it's just loud. You ever stood next to a symbol? My, my son Omar loves hitting the symbol just again and again and again, and it's cute for two seconds. And then it's unbearable. No matter how eloquent, how heavenly your speech, if it's not to build others up, it is unbearable. That's what Paul is saying. He starts with the gift the Corinthians loved, tongues. Then he moves on to the gift that he thought was most valuable, prophecy. And he uses hyperbole to talk about it. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, no one has this kind of gift of knowledge. We only know in part and prophesy in part, Paul went on to say. But he's saying, just imagine that you knew all of God's mysteries. And you just had a direct channel to God. And he was telling you everything happening in the world. You understood it. You thought, understood the thoughts and intentions of other people's hearts, what God is doing. You could know all of that. And you could have so much faith as to move mountains, to do the impossible. Without love, it's nothing. And notice he says not just it's nothing, but I am nothing. What's he saying? That, that I have no status in the kingdom of God without love. Love is the proof of my status in the kingdom of God. Faith always manifests in what? 
love. Faith working through love, that's what counts. Love is the proof, so all of the spiritual superpowers in the world don't verify you're standing before God. Only love is the proof of that. Now, think about this. Paul extends it beyond miraculous gifts to anything we do. He says, if I give away all I have to the poor, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have love, I gain nothing. Now he's moving beyond the miraculous gifts to just the ministry of help and generosity. And he says, you can look like the most generous, self-sacrificial person in the world and give everything away. And if it's not animated and controlled by Christ-like love, is it anything at all? No. It's, it's nothing. If you go to be burned for your devotion to God, like the three men in the book of Daniel, but not animated and controlled by love, it's, it's nothing. Do you get Paul's point? Do you see how Paul is an equal opportunity offender in this passage? Here, here's why. Because different Christians have a tendency to prize different things as the mark of real Christianity. And for charismatic Christians, there might be a tendency to say, look, unless you're practicing the miraculous gifts, you don't have the spirit at all. That's the marker. And other Christians go, no, it's knowledge. It's Bible, 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 Bible. And if I have all the right Bible answers in theology and I understand all mysteries and knowledge, then I'm a mature Christian. And other kind of justice-oriented Christians go, no, we have to disadvantage ourselves and pour ourselves out for the poor and the marginalized. And Paul goes, sure, they're all great. And if they're not animated and controlled by love, they're all worthless. Love is the end to which they all point. Love is the end to which they are all guided. Love for God, love for others. And that's the gut check for us. How would you complete the sentence if you were writing it? If I met all my professional goals but had not love. If I became the most renowned pastor in the world but had not love. If I raised perfect children but had not love. Love, if I got all the acclamation and awards I ever wanted but had not love, that's what Paul is saying. The only thing that counts is love, and any blessing God gives you amounts to nothing if it's not channeled in love. So the gifts need love, don't they? The gifts are worthless without love. But here's the interesting thing Paul goes on to say love doesn't need the gifts. In fact, there will be a day when the gifts are brought to an end, but what goes on? Love. That's why he goes on to say this, that love never ends. Love is eternal. Literally, he says, love never falls. It doesn't falter. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. He says, don't presume that you have a standing before God. You know what will demonstrate on the last day that you have a standing before God? What won't fall, what won't falter? Do you know what it is? Love. Love is the fruit of your faith. Christ-like love is the ultimate demonstration that you are a follower of Jesus. And that love is the thing that will endure into all eternity because that's the thing God was after in you to cultivate. That was his purpose. Guess what passes away? All of these gifts that people are so impressed with in this life. Prophecies pass away. Tongues cease. 
Knowledge passes away. And here Paul is talking about the the miraculous gift of knowledge, supernatural knowledge from God, words of knowledge and revelation. Paul isn't just saying that these things sort of fade out of existence over time. He's saying they will be brought to an end. That in the church age, these things exist. Christ will return And God, in his sovereignty, will bring them to an end. And that brings up an interesting question, isn't it? Like, well, if the gifts don't end until the second coming, should we keep prophesying? Should we keep speaking in tongues? Are there still words of knowledge? Were those just early church things? Are those today church things? Those are good questions, aren't they? I'm not going to talk about any of them, okay? That's the next three weeks. We'll talk about the gifts. But the point here is the priority of love. The, the, the gifts require love. Love does not require the gifts. Love can be displayed forever. And in fact, the gifts are just foretastes of God's love and foretastes of what we'll experience forever. That's what he goes on to say. For right now, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, that's Christ's return, the partial will pass away. Paul is saying that these spiritual gifts of knowledge, tongues, words of knowledge, they they do give us knowledge of God and not just theoretical knowledge, an experiential knowledge. We experience his love. We know God intimately. We know God personally through these gifts, but they're partial. They're just a taste of what's coming, a taste of the experience of God that we'll have. And once we have that full experience, we don't need the partial experience anymore. Paul gives us two analogies to think through that. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, now Paul is relating our existence now before Christ to what? To being a child. And it's not a negative analogy. He's not saying there's anything wrong with being a child. He's just saying we are childlike in this age in our understanding of God. We're limited in our capacity to understand him and relate to him, right? If you're a parent, you understand this. Your kids, you know them better than they know you when they're young. You can understand them more intimately. They can't understand you in the same way. They're limited in their reasoning. And yet, when they grow up, you're going to have actually a better relationship, hopefully, because you can relate more as peers, more mutually. That's the image here. That at the second coming of Christ, we grow into the fullness of our experience and knowledge of God. There's this mutuality. There's this new intimacy of growing into perfection. And at that point, these these gifts are no longer needed. And what is that affection characterized by? Well, it's love. It's deep love. So that's analogy one is childhood to adulthood. And, And then he says, we see now in a mirror dimly. Literally, Paul says, we see in a mirror as in a riddle. Don't you love Paul? He just mixes metaphors better than anyone. See in a mirror as in a riddle. What's he saying there? He's saying that that right now our knowledge of God is indirect. Like in a mirror. It's not distorted knowledge of God. It's just indirect, like looking at someone in a mirror or in a picture. But what does he say we can look forward to? A knowledge of God where we are face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God fully knows us. He knows the depths of our heart. We know God, what? In parts. A day is coming where we will know God experientially, intimately, mutually, 
in the same way he knows us now. Does that make sense? That's what we're looking forward to. Our relationship with God right now through the spiritual gifts, it's a little bit like talking to someone on Zoom, right? It's great. It's useful. Got us through COVID. It's helpful to talk to people on Zoom. You know, no one takes a honeymoon on Zoom. You got to experience something's face to face. We have a, a reflected relationship with God now through his word, through the gifts, through his people. We're seeing things in part, experiencing in part something better is coming. And when the better thing comes, it's sort of like the sun rising and all these lesser lights just fade as we know him. But, but here's the, the, the sticking point. All of these gifts fade what doesn't fade love. In fact, the thing that endures is love. Why? Because God is an eternal community of love who has created us to know and enjoy him in that eternal community of love. And so what endures for always and all time is love, which means the thing God is cultivating in me now, love is the thing that prepares me for eternity to know him and enjoy him forever. God didn't make you because he needed servants. God didn't need more creatures to use. God created you out of the overflow of his triune life, which is love, to enfold you into that love for eternity. And the way you know you resemble that God is what? You love like he loves. Love never ends. And that gets me thinking about just my legacy and what will endure from my own life. What is it? Uh, is it my accomplishments, my accolades, or is what people remember is what God uses just the way I love other people? You see this with obituaries, right? You can have a person who accomplishes amazing things, but, you know, if it turns out more information comes about them and they were a real jerk, no one looks back kindly on that person. Conversely, the person who loved in their most intimate relationships, their legacy grows over time. Love is the one thing worth pursuing. It's the one thing that endures. It's the, the one thing God uses is, is love. And, and you know, the older I get, the less I care about accolades and affirmation and the more I care about just being helpful to people. You know, when I was young as a preacher, the thing I wanted to hear more than anything was, you're a good preacher. <laughs> oh, man, you're such a good preacher. Really, what I want to hear is, you're a better preacher than that guy, right? Like, that's, that's, that was the animating thing, and that just gets hollow after a while. It's hollow. The, the thing I want to hear is, you helped me. That helped me see Jesus. That helped me answer a question. Helped me solve a problem. Helped me direct me to the path of righteousness. Being helpful is the thing that endures. That's the only thing that's worth pursuing is building up other people. It's the only thing that lasts. Why is love essential? Because it's the thing God was actually out to cultivate in us all along. It's the thing that endures into eternity. It's what counts. That's love. So here's the million-dollar question. What is love? Right? As Whitesnake and Bob Marley and Forner and Hathaway and S Club 7 and so many others have asked, what is love? Right? 
baby, don't hurt me. What is love? And it's so important we answer the question from the Bible because there's a lot of ways to get this wrong. And so let's look at what love is, what love is not, and finally, what fuels love. What is love? Paul says 15 things about love, and the first two are core. This is what love is. If you were going to sum up love in two words, here are the two words Paul uses, patient and kind. Patient and kind. As one commentator notes, Paul shows us here the two sides of love, the active side of love and the passive side of love. Passively, what is love? It is patient. That means that love by its very nature is slow to anger, forbearing, enduring, (coughs) relenting, forgiving. Love refuses to mete out judgment or even harshness, even when someone deserves it. Love puts up with difficulty. Love endures hardship for the sake of the other. That's the passive aspect of love, the willingness not to retaliate, but that's just one half. Because actively, love is kind. That means it's proactively helpful. It's merciful. It doesn't look first at what self needs, but what would be most helpful to the other. It is proactively compassionate, even to the point of willing to suffer for the other. Patience, kindness. And of course, this is a description of the gospel, isn't it? How how does Paul describe God's character toward us? Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of what? His kindness and patience, knowing that that is what leads us to repentance. What defines love is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the ultimate definitive manifestation of God's patience and kindness. Patience because God forbears. Patience because God had every right to mete out judgment and wrath on us and he relents and doesn't. And pours it out on his son and kindness because God doesn't give us what we deserve but what we need, which is mercy. What we desperately need, which is help, deliverance. Patience, kindness, this is the heart of love, and at the heart of both is what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Refusing to give someone what they deserve, dying that others might live, a death of one's own interests for the good of the other. Do do you see how the patience and kindness of God are displayed in the cross? That's Love. What what is love? I like Paul Tripp's definition. This is a good one. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that that person being loved is deserving. It is willing, which means it's not passively resistant. It's not coerced into something. It, It comes from a willing heart from the lover, and it's a love that's willing to what? Suffer to disadvantage yourself, to endure pain and setback and heartache, ultimately for the good of the other and the good as God defines good. What would truly benefit that person and not with any hope of reciprocation or return at all. Love because of what they need, not in the hope of getting something back. 
It is unilateral. That is the gold standard. That's the cross. And at this point, you're nodding. Yes, that's great, Jeff. I agree. Let's close in prayer. Because the uncomfortable thing to talk about is what Paul goes on to talk about and says, so let me tell you what love doesn't look like in your life. Here's what love is not. Eight things, and these would have been very uncomfortable for the Corinthians because Paul's poking at all of them here and the things he's been addressing throughout the letter. First, love does not envy. Envy is the boiling desire to possess what other people have. Right, it's the sinking feeling when you find out your friends have gone on vacation on social media, right? That should be my vacation, right? When the other person gets the promotion. It's that need to constantly qualify other people's achievements. You know, the real reason they got that job is because of who they, right? What were the Corinthians filled with? Chapter three says envy, status-seeking, grabbing, which created strife and friction. That's the opposite of love because love wills your good. And if something genuinely good happens to you, I can rejoice in that, period. Second, love does not boast, does not brag. It does not even humble brag, right? I'm so humbled that I'm so good at that, right? It doesn't proclaim its own accomplishments or skills. If I'm focused on your good, I'm not preoccupied with telling you how good I am. Boasting is closely related to the next term. It's not arrogant, puffed up inflated with your own importance and big dealness. The Corinthians were puffed up. That's what they said about their wisdom, chapters 2 and 3. Spiritual knowledge, chapter 8. Their enlightened stance towards sexuality, chapter 5. They think of themselves as spiritual. That's the term they coined for themselves. Being puffed up means I'm the indispensable one. I'm the one that you need. Fourth, love is not rude. That idea of rudeness means bringing shame on other people. There's a sense of propriety, what's appropriate. We don't want to draw negative attention to others to embarrass them. The Corinthians were shaming each other. We've seen this. Chapter 11, husbands and wives shaming each other in public worship. The rich shaming the poor. Love brings honor to other people. It considers how to present others in the best light, not the worst. It builds up, it does not humiliate. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not seek its own interests first. That was the Corinthian mindset, right? What am I entitled to do? (laughs) What's lawful? We've seen that again and again. What can I do that benefits me that God's okay with? Rather than what would most build up other people. Love is not irritable. That means it's not easily provoked or exasperated. Not easily offended. That we know people are difficult and they say dumb stuff. And we don't let that hinder us from serving and loving people. We don't instantly take offense or nurse grievances. That brings us to the next item. Love is not resentful. Literally, love does not reckon evil. Love doesn't keep score. You ever keep score in relationships? I know if you're married, you never do that. Um, But... Love does not keep score. What is that? It's keeping a running tally of someone else's failures to form a judgment against them. Love doesn't say, oh, fine, I'll do it. But I'm so sick of doing it. Love is not passive resistance. All you agreeable people know what I'm talking about. You do something for someone else and you're smiling on the outside. 
and you're seething on the inside. Love is willing. It's not coerced. Love doesn't serve expecting something in return. Love is not tit for tat. Love doesn't do a good thing and they get mad at that person when they say, you didn't do it back to me though. You didn't invite me over. You didn't give me a gift. You didn't encourage me after I encouraged you. Love doesn't do that because it's about the other person's good, not your own. Love forgives and forgets, which means that before you ever confront someone for anything, you've already forgiven them in your heart. You've said, I've already put that away. I'm not going to hold you in the court. I'm not going to hold you in trial. In fact, by the time I come to correct you, I've already dealt with my heart issue for you. I've given it to Jesus. So my reason for coming to you isn't to get something off my chest. It's not because I'm just so mad. It's actually for your good. It's for your building up in the glory of God. That's why I'm coming. That's love. Not resentful does not keep a tally of wrong. Now, lest we think that love is merely this passive, tolerant, weak niceness, Paul adds the eighth qualifier. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. By definition, love wills the good of the other, which means you need God's definition of good to be loving. That the things I want for you are what God wants for you, not necessarily just what you want for you. That, that's one of the problems with the way we talk about love in our culture is that love means something like unconditionally supporting any decision you make if you feel good about it. Right? It's just you do you. And I'm here to love you and support that. And if you don't have any transcendent standard, that's the best love you can have is just sort of this emotional affirmation of people doing whatever they feel is right in their own eyes. And you see that. Kashal and I are watching a TV show a few nights ago. One of the characters gets a divorce and her friend says to her, oh, that's terrible, I'm so sorry. And then she says, no, I'm happy about it. He goes, oh, that's wonderful, I'm so excited for you, right? And that's, they, they, they were poking fun at something, but it's very true in our culture that however you feel about this thing, that's my responsibility is to support that. That's not love. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Love is rejoicing in the truth of the gospel. And so what I want for you is what God wants for you. That good, that's what I'm going to point you toward. Not because I hate you, but because I love you. And that's the only good worth having, as, as good as God defines it. You see, the, the common denominator in everything that love is not, love is not a preoccupation with who? Me. It's about your good, your advantage, your benefit, your holiness, your sanctification. And so the question we all have to ask is, well, am I a loving person? And, and, and here's the best way to, to answer that for yourself. Gordon Fee suggests this in his commentary. I think it's helpful. Look again at this list and um, just take out the word love and insert your name. Jeff is patient and kind. He does not envy or boast. That's not actually true, but <laughs> insert your name, read through the list, and then where does it feel? Mm -hmm. We're working on it. <laughs> and that's the definition of love. What rings true? What rings hollow? And see, now you get to the problem with love, and this is why I don't like thinking about it or talking about it is that if you define love this way, 
It is dying to yourself in every situation you're ever going to be in. It is taking up your cross all the time and saying no to what I want, to say yes to what God wants for me in this situation. It, it is a way of life that encompasses and animates everything you, you do. It's bigger than action. So some Christians are like, a big deal. Love isn't feeling. It's action. It's action. It's action. Yes, it's action, but it's not reducible to action. Because see, if it was just things I do, then it's controllable. Then I can just decide to do loving things and be a loving person. That's not love. Love is a willing, joyful self-sacrifice that animates and motivates everything I do without resentment, without irritability, without these other things that's focused on your good that permeates everything. 1 Corinthians 16, let everything you do be done in love. Colossians 3, love binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's nothing sweet or sentimental about this. Love is crucifying yourself for the sake of others. The reality is you can do very loving things in a very unloving way and they're not loving. For example, I am great at rage cleaning my house. You ever rage clean? Just walk in and my kids have failed and, and it's easier to just do it myself than to train them and they need to know how badly they failed. Fine, I'll do it. Man, I am efficient. I am ruthlessly efficient and that house is clean. It looks good and I feel vindicated and no one would say, see how he loves his family. My kids aren't saying, see how he loves us. They're probably saying, see how he loathes us uh, when I'm doing that. It, it is very possible to do things that are good without love. In fact, some of the most externally sacrificial people I've ever met are some of the most bitter, resentful, grumpy, difficult to deal with people I've ever met. Why? Because they're not animated and motivated by love. So ask yourself, where do I fall short and remember, Paul is talking about love within what community? This is the body of Christ. What does Jesus say in John 13? It's your love for one another that demonstrates. So the, the relational priority of love is right here. And so it's not just that I'm loving generically, it's that I'm loving you specifically. And so if I'm not invested in these relationships, that's where I start. If I don't sacrificially love other believers this way, then I'm not meeting God's standard of love. Now, I, I say all that to say that, that, that it's impossible to manufacture this. It's impossible. Because it's not your love you're called to embody, it's God's love. And so what animates this? I think Paul gets at it in verse seven, the last four things on his list. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Look at the two things on the ends, bears and endures. What is Paul saying that love always perseveres? Real love keeps on loving. It puts up with a lot. Think of chapter nine where Paul says, I will endure anything to see the gospel advance. That's love. I will put up with anything. That's the kind of love he's talking about. What animates it? Look at the two things in the middle. Love believes all things, hopes all things. What does that mean? I had to grapple with that this week because I didn't know what it meant, but it doesn't mean that love is gullible. No. No. I'm like, okay, I'll believe everything. 
even though you're a pathological liar. I believe you because I love you. Love doesn't hope all things, right? That, oh, I'm sure that person will turn around even though they've given me no indication to hope that. That's not what he's saying. I think it's better translated, love always believes and always hopes. It's a believing love. It's a hopeful love. Well, believing and hoping in what? The promises of God. Faith and hope are the fuel of love. And without faith and hope, it is impossible to love because it is faith working through love. Faith in what God has done for us and his love for us, hope in God's future that we will be vindicated for loving like him. And if you don't have that view of love, you cannot love. We love because he first loved us. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Until you reflect deeply on Christ's love for you, you cannot love other people. In fact, any flicker of love in you is from Christ to begin with, and that thing can only be increased as you meditate on Christ's love for you because your love for others is not in response to them. You're not loving them because they're lovable. You don't love them because they deserve love. They don't. You love them because Jesus loves you. And and you love them in the hope that this is the way God says to live, and ultimately you will have glory and honor. Why? Because you loved. Because God's a rewarder of those who seek him. So think about it this way. You know, that the person in your life who is hardest to love Start with this. You can't love them. You can't on your own. Apart from Jesus, you cannot love them, and all of your attempts to love them in your own power will just frustrate you and frustrate them because they will be distorted by sin in one way or the other. In fact, just focusing on the law, love people, might actually cause you to resent them more. Martin Luther said that the command to love God is what drove him to hate God because he didn't understand the gospel. And so every day, he just saw the ways he was failing to love God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, I've never really loved you, ever. So you gave me something impossible to do. And it wasn't until he understood that God already loved him perfectly, irrespective of what he did, that his heart was changed to love back. That's true for you, too, in any of your relationships. The thing that bugs you most about that person in your life is the thing God puts up with in you all the time. The thing that makes that person so hard to love, Jesus went to the cross to die for that thing. And so... If I'm struggling with kindness, how has Jesus shown his kindness to you? If I'm struggling with patience and forbearance, think of the infinite forbearance and patience of Jesus Christ toward you and don't stop thinking about it. For every look at that person, take five looks at Jesus and what he's done until your heart starts to change. 
until you realize the staggering depth of his patience and kindness with you. And then you'll start to see the first flickers of desire to want to love that person. Not because they're lovely, but because Jesus loves you. Love is at the core of the Christian message, but it's important we get this right. The, the Christian message is not love God and love people. It's not. That's the law. That's the response. The Christian message is this. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We don't get to define love. We don't even display love. God displays love, and now we reflect that love as we have been loved. Family, God is not going to stop until he makes you a loving person because he wants to make you like him. And where you are resisting that, God's just going to keep working on you because he loves you. And the thing that will demonstrate to San Leandro that there is a God who is real and has a gospel that's real is not how good my preaching is or our worship or our strategies or we get our programs just a little better. It's the way that we disadvantage ourselves for each other and sacrificially love each other like that. That's a non-negotiable, and without that, we have nothing. Let's pray. So, Spirit of God, cultivate this love in us. (laughs) Work the miracle of making our hearts like yours, Jesus, that we might prove to be your disciples. And and thank you, Lord, that when we were your enemies, when we hated you, you loved us. When, When there was nothing in us desirable, you desired us and desired fellowship, and and laid down your life that we might live. You took up the cross that we might have life. You took the punishment so we didn't have to. Um, Jesus, we already have everything we need, and so just remind us that we're free to give away our lives because what we have in you we cannot lose. I ask it in your name. Amen.